When life happens, plans need to change. Shaping Change, hosted by certified financial planner Ross Marino, is dedicated to helping financial advisors better serve their clients when life takes those unexpected turns. Welcome to the Shaping Change show. Today, I'm joined by Jamie Hopkins, Director of Retirement Research at the Carson Group and a professor at Creighton University. Jamie, welcome to the show. Hey, Ross, uh, good to have me on and uh, appreciate uh, you know all the time I get to spend with you, so this will be fun. <laughs> I've been a fan for years, uh, read your books, I've heard you speak, learned a lot from you, and a lot of financial planners would say the same thing. Uh, maybe everybody doesn't know your track within the industry, so could you take the first minute and just kind of bring us up to speed of what you've done and how you've learned along the way? Yeah, and I'll try to keep it short because I, I, I am known to talk for long periods of time. But, uh, you know, I started off as an attorney actually in the private equity field uh, doing chemical company acquisition work, interestingly enough. Uh, shifted out of there, clerked in the appellate division and got two really nice cases that I got to work on, one being a large ERISA one and then one of Bernie Madoff's cases. So I'm actually on the insurance side there. Uh, ended up leaving there and uh, kind of by ways of things, ended up spending about seven years at the American College college and uh, went there really to help David Littell, who's uh, one of my mentors, build the RICP, so Retirement Income Certified Professional Designation. Went there, launched that um, with well, Kent Takino also at the time and uh, David and myself and spent seven years there, ended up taking over the, re the research center there, the program. And we had about 20,000 financial advisors who had gone through that in the seven years I was there, which is actually more than uh, any other program I'm aware of. It's actually more than the CFP programs during that stretch. Left there, joined uh, Carson Group and Ron Carson as director of retirement research, doing a lot of writing and uh, kind of shifted there a little bit, um, you know, over time have, uh, I run our coaching company and the wealth solutions, a couple other things now I'm managing partner, but uh, yeah, that's kind of my career in, in a short, a short period. So I've, uh, I guess I kind of went from an attorney to an academic, then back into the practitioner side of things. And, and now I just joke, I'm pretty much like a middle manager somewhere out there in the world. <laughs> What, what I appreciate about your history and also hearing you speak is that you have varied experiences, but, but also you see things from a different angle. It's, it's easy for us to really be focused on, here's my view, and I'm always trying to see that in the world around me. But you do come from different angles with coaching, understanding behavioral, understanding the legal aspect. It, it definitely adds to how you present. So I'm going to ask a question that I know I struggle with, and I think a lot of financial planners do as well just had a meeting where we went over the same principle. I see net worth, I see big picture, and then I drill down and, and I see withdrawal rates and how much income it may generate. And I think of how the people function and what their story is. But then when the client starts talking, they see monthly income. And I may talk about something else and then they see monthly income. <laughs> Why is it that people tend to focus regardless of their net worth, unless it's extreme high net worth, why do they focus so much on that income number? Well, because I mean, the short answer is the income number is the only thing that provides us any satisfaction day to day, right? I mean, if I have no income, I can't spend. <laughs> and then if I can't spend, I can't consume. And then I don't have uh, any enjoyment out of my consumption. And, you know, that, that, I think that's the basic human element part, right? Like people, people tend to know 
um, what their take-home paycheck is, right? Like that's always something I can get pretty close to, not dollar for dollar, but pretty close. But if I tell people to tell me what their taxes are on that, they usually can't, right? They don't know that part. So they focus on the income. They're not focused on all the other pieces. And, you know, funny enough, I mean, that's, uh, you know, really my first real foray into this profession of like being deeply embedded into it and committed to it came all from retirement income. And it came from my experience with my mom, which is, you know, she, she didn't graduate college, ran a construction company. And my dad passed away when I was eight. And so she's out here running this company, never had a, you know, 401k pension, anything like that. I remember seeing ads on TV saying, Hey, come through your income planning with us, right? Your retirement income planning. And it was just always on my mind. Like, what does somebody like my mom do? Who's never, had any of those savings vehicles, so has no way to generate the income. And, you know, I, I think for people at their core, they want to know that they can meet their expenditures, right? That's kind of the underlying piece. So they need to know what the cash flow is. And if you don't have that income and cash flow, the rest of it's meaningless. If I told you, Ross, right, like here's $25 million, but you can't touch it for 50 years, it's kind of meaningless, right? I mean, it's great that you have it. <laughs> great legacy things to your kids, but, you know, from your day to day, it really does nothing for you. Those two questions of how much income can I draw from my investments and where does it come from? After 30 years, I'm no longer surprised about it, but I have to say it took me a while to get there that people were so fixated on that. And it's not just because they don't understand the big picture, right? So I, I don't think it's a, it's a knowledge issue or an experience issue. It's just like you said, it, it's instinctive and it's how they function. And any tips for financial planners to help communicate that to people when they're really fixated on it? Yeah, I mean, it's a big behavioral change. And I, you know, I, I think it's tough because we teach people that their entire working career. I mean, it's going back to the paycheck piece, right? Like the very first thing that you're probably, you know, positive experience with money is actually money coming to you in some type of flow from work, your first job, a gift. Like that's most people's first money experience. So then we're saying like, hey, don't think about this. Think about something. And you're like, well, I mean, that was your first experience. I can't, I can't change that. And then most of your work career, we focused on what's your income week to week, month to month, whatever it is. So it's very hard to get away from that. And, um, you know, I talk about that a lot in, in the book, but I think for advisors, it's always meeting clients where they are. I think a lot of times um, this is a, a thing that they'll, they do in some like assessments about personal behavior, which is if you're not aligning with like your clients or your workforce, right? It's actually almost impossible to change all of them, right? Like I actually don't have control over that. So if a client's coming in and they're focused on something, how do I then change what I'm doing, modify it to work within their mental constructs so I can get them moving in the direction that we want them to move in, right? So a, a lot of times it's asking the question, right? Like, what can I change about what I'm doing then? So if they're coming in and they're always focused on that, how do I pivot that to the conversation I want to have with them, right? And not kind of, as you said, 30 years of doing this, not expecting a different <laughs> answer the next time somebody comes in, right? Yeah, you're expecting it now. And, uh, but I, I think for a lot of people, I try to get away from numbers, investments, strategies in a lot of the conversations. And it's about, you know, how are you feeling? What are you worried about? You know, what's going on in life? And, and certain things, I think a lot of people ask, I think we were going to get better at asking these questions. I know I'm going on a little bit here, but here's a great example, right? A lot of people, um, the icebreaker questions, right? Oh, how are you doing? 
Well, that's actually a terrible question. There's research from Harvard showing it's a terrible question. You don't get real answers, right? Things like, you know, how are you feeling today, right? Um, that's a better question. What are you most excited about this week? Like, what's the most exciting thing about your week you're looking forward to? That actually elicits a better response. A lot of our generic questions, even the one that's like, hey, has anything new happened to you lately? A lot of advisors use that. It's actually, again, a really bad question. It's too broad. And people are like, oh, no, no nothing real new. Well, a thousand new things actually happen, <laughs> right? Like, we got to get a little bit more specific to get a little bit more specific of a question back. And uh, yeah, I mentioned the Harvard. There's a Harvard Business Review article on this about how like they did a study of CEOs and other people and that CEOs tend to be very good at asking more specific, meaningful questions questions to people. And so it's kind of allowed them to kind of relate with people more often than a general person does. So I think that's a great lesson for advisors when they're thinking about that. You know, if they're focused on that, ask them a slightly more specific question. I have a slightly unhealthy obsession with questions and how the brain works with asking questions. And uh, my, my kids will joke that uh, it, it took them years to realize that daddy wasn't a moron because he never actually answered a question. He just kept asking <laughs> you more questions. And I don't think daddy knows anything. He's just, he never seems to answer anything. He's just, because I, I ask more questions, but of course I, I do answer some, but um, I use in, in our process, I have four steps. Steps three and four are, what are you thinking? How are you feeling? And I just have to say, I'm always, not at this point, but early on, I was always surprised at how forthcoming people were of, well, this is what's on my mind. This is what I'm concerned about. And here's how I'm feeling. So it was wonderful to learn that where I'm thinking I'm going to have to dig to pull that yeah. information out. And all I had to do was ask. And it was great. It, it was a good epiphany moment for me. So I'm going to pivot that to your book, Rewirement, which I love. You just came out with a second edition I'm sure being the academic researcher that you are, you looked at some of the book and thought, you know what, got to change this, got to update that. And whoops, that doesn't seem to be the case anymore. How about you talk about some of the uh, changes that you made in Rewirement Second Edition? Yeah, I've got one behind me over here too. It's harder to see, but uh, yeah, rolled it out again. And uh, yeah, it's funny. So that I, it did grow about by 80 pages. So when you say the academic version of me, um, yeah, I, I, it, I was pretty happy with the first one, but you know, like most, you know, I've written, what have I done? Three textbooks, two eBooks for Forbes. And then this was really my first like consumer-esque book that you can actually hand out to people. And um, funny enough, the reason I wrote it, I, I remember, I think it was Tom Hagna that his resonated, resonated with me. And he basically said, Jay, Jamie, you're doing all this speaking, you're good at it, but you need something to like hand out and sell to people in the crowd, which was the book, right? And he's like, you need to write a book. And I was like, all right, I'll write a book. Um, so I, it took me a little while to figure out what I want, probably over a year before I actually landed on what I felt like writing about. Um, and so that, that was all kind of like early stages of still of my thought process on this, right? I think at that point I had, uh, you know, RICP had launched, I've been teaching advisors, but I was early into my research, maybe I was 15 or 20 publications in, and now I'm probably pushing 40 um, of them. So, you know, my, my knowledge in the area is expanded, but the thing I actually added a lot more to the book, funny enough, is the question. So the, I added questions that advisors or clients should be asking at the end of every chapter and piece, because that's what I kind of felt was missing, right? Like I was telling people a bunch of stuff, but what I wasn't doing was, you know, kind of asking people to be a little bit more introspective on themselves. So we went in and kind of 
added all these questions, takeaways, and a lot more behavioral, just kind of concepts throughout the book. And I've tried to keep it away. Like I don't have index numbers really in the book, but I'm also, I am talking about retirement planning and a process in the world we live in today. Well, since I wrote the first book, um, you know, like Secure Act passed and CARES Act passed. And so I did go back and kind of rework the book to kind of include the pandemic issues and what happened and how that, you know, nursing homes and how badly that impacted them and, you know, changed people's minds perhaps on that and, and some of the new tax rules and where we might be going. So those are really the big things I would say, but, you know, behavioral, a lot of more behavioral research is in there and a lot more introspective questions uh, went into the book, which are nice ads. I mean, the process, right. Didn't really change. Right. I, I've, I've been running a 10 kind of, 10 step. I, I made it 10. You could make it seven if you really, really tried. But, uh, you know, 10 a nice number. So people will gravitate to that. I mean, the process didn't change, but inside of the process, things change. Right. And that's kind of what's been updated. So um, going, going well so far. I, it is one of those things, right? You, you do a book and you're like, did I actually I put all this work? And I wrote 80 more pages. Did it actually get any better? And I think it did. And I've had a couple of people tell me that. But who knows? They're mostly friends. <laughs> So if you, if you read it, you can let me know if you read the first one. Uh, did it actually get any better? Or did I spend a whole year of work to, to put out the second edition that's no better than the first edition? <laughs> well, as someone with the unhealthy uh, obsession with questions, as soon as you said I added questions to the end of the chapters, even if I love the first book, I've got to go back and get book number two because that's how I apply it to the planner-client relationship. So I, I think it's awesome that you did that. One of the interactions planners often have is what's your number where we focus on how much do you need to save or what's your income number. It's a great conversation starter. It's easy for clients to connect with. And especially since this is my big takeaway, someone's first money experience was probably the budget. Here's what I make. Here's what I spend. That's why it's so ingrained in them. Having a number that they can fixate on is certainly helpful. But as a financial planner, I know life happens. Plans change. That means my plan is based on assumptions. One of those assumptions changes because life happened and that's it. That number doesn't work anymore. So what would you say to financial planners of addressing that with clients on, yes, we're putting a plan together. It does include assumptions. It has a number. However, where do we go with that? Yeah, I mean, look, we kind of brought it up before people gravitate to those types of things. And I mean, even if it's not in the financial world, we're going to gravitate to those cornerstones, that central worldview where everything else starts to spin around. And, you know, for, for finance, for investing, for retirement, it's often a number, right? Whether it's an income number, whether it's the magic savings number, I need $3 million. And I've written articles saying there is no magic number, right? In end of day, that's kind of meaningless. Um, but people gravitate towards it. So, you know, I don't try to talk people away from it because it's it's a goal to some degree, right? And it, it then encourages behavior towards that goal. Sometimes it can be negative, right? I mean, I, I run into people who over worry about the number and not really what you know, they can actually do because they haven't gone through the process of understanding where their income is. Um, so I think when you get to advisors on that, right, it is taking the half step back and it's trying to work on their, it is trying to work on their goals. What do they want their outcomes to be? Um, you know, I, I grew up and I, I usually tell stories with things like this and I've got two around this one. So I'll try to get through them fast. The first one is, right, I, I grew up swimming. So I use this one and I just got lucky with this one. And I, I feel more and more lucky about having this experience 
upgrades almost every week that goes by. So I grew up in Baltimore. Michael Phelps and I are a month apart in age. And I think we've maybe talked about this before. I, I swam with Michael for almost 15 years. And our head coach, Bob Bowman, has been, I think, four-time Olympic head coach um, for swimming. And, you know, I, I, you don't realize this stuff when you're 15, that like, hey, this is amazing life experience. And you need to learn from it. But looking back, I, I, I did learn a lot from it. And so, you know, Bob was all about, you know, setting goals and setting a process. But he was also very clear that, look, like, if we're going to, I think Michael was 12-ish when he wrote down that he wanted to be the, the best Olympian of all time. Well, the reality is between age 12 and age, what is he like, probably 32 or something when that was kind of all said and done, a lot of stuff is going to happen. In there. <laughs> There's a lot of stuff outside of our control. Now we had a goal, but man, I mean, he shifted from living in Baltimore to Michigan, to Tempe, to going to Rio and right. Having, you know, you can't plan for all of those things, but you can have a goal that's kind of guiding you and you can then build a process that they can change along the way. Right. And that's the probably the most important thing is like you learn how to train differently. How we trained when I first started swimming wasn't the same way that we were training when I left the sport. Right. They had shifted completely. And that's OK. Right. I mean, that's the same thing. Like if we're distributing money today in a retirement income plan, is that going to be the same way I'm going to distribute money in 15 years? No. But if I have a process that's still goal oriented, that's paying attention to it, that's shifting, that can work. And so then the more analogy of this comes from the sailing world, which I use a lot, right? Like you can go and say, hey, I'm going to go sailing and I don't really sail. So, I'm, you know, I use an analogy that I don't follow, but, uh, you know, you get in a boat and you're looking back at the harbor and you say, I'm going to sail over to that harbor. Okay, great. And then the wind changes direction. Well, I can't control which way the wind's going to blow or how hard the wind is going to blow. What can you control? You can control the direction of your sails, right? And then all, all of a sudden, right, you can either change your sails so that the new way the wind is blowing still takes you to your destination, probably just a slightly different path, or you cannot change them and you can let it blow you off course into the rocks. And, and that's in essence what we're doing with planning, right? People have these goals, they have these magic numbers, they're frames of what they want to accomplish, but we usually have to dive deeper into what are their goals, what's their underlying, and even things, you know, what's their, actually their underlying values. I mean, I think often advisors don't get that far down into it, um, but understanding the value proposition behind somebody's goals and why they have that as a goal. Um, and then that can actually help us create a better process and get to people where they want to be. I've certainly come to realize that financial planning and making decisions is much more about direction than destination because that end result, the goal, it may change over time. But what I'm doing now, that tells me the direction I'm heading. If I'm spending more than I make, I know that direction, not going to work out so well. If I'm spending less than saving, I know that direction, probably going to work out pretty well. So it's certainly helpful to see that. I want to talk a little bit about what we we'll see coming in the future because you just mentioned about what you did maybe 10 years ago or 20 years ago. It's not the same as what you're doing today. Things change. Well, the next 10 and 20 years, there's also going to be a lot of change, but I want to do that in a separate show. So let's wrap this up. We're going to call it part one and we're going to come back to what can we see in the future? Part two. Is that okay? That sounds good. So it'll be kind of like rewirement edition one and rewirement edition two, right? And we'll, we'll improve in the next one. <laughs> I, I love it. And hopefully I'll come up with some more questions at the end of everything you say. So thanks for being with me for part one, Jamie, and we'll record part two next. Thank you. 
Thank you for listening to Shaping Change with Ross Marino. This show is for general information purposes only and is not intended to provide recommendations or advice. Speak with a legal, tax, or financial advisor before making any decisions. Past performance references are historical and do not guarantee future results. Visit rlsummit.com to learn more.